Hey guys, I am here with Rosecrans Baldwin, author of a recent GQ article uh, about. Uh, help me out here, Rosecrans. It's you. Are we calling it a cult? Are we calling it a self-help organization? Um, <laughs> you you were sort of you sort of you sort of stumbled into a, a cult. It seems like on your on your way to explore all things LA woo woo self improvement. What happened was my editors at GQ. We had this idea that I would spend a month sort of sampling the new age or the latest new age in Los Angeles. You know, because new age goes back to the 70s, late 60s, early 80s, even the early 90s, where you've got a real strong interest in tarot cards and, I don't know, waves of nutrition, uh, the emergence of yoga as an activity in the United States. Uh, just things that are sort of feeling a little bit counterculture really found a home here in Los Angeles. And these days with Urban Outfitters selling ponchos and suddenly it's very hip in Atwater to do crystals in your therapy. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, they're like, okay, we'll just go sample it all, like spend a month and just, you know, dive in. Uh, and so I just did a ton of activities, but yeah, oddly enough, the article doesn't really get into all of them because I wound up joining this, um, transformational training group, as they would call themselves. And what I discovered sort of after about four days with them just suddenly became, oh my God, this is what the story is going to be about for the most part. And it's interesting because as your article comes off as somewhat skeptical, but it does seem like in the article you're, you're affected by it. I mean, you seem like you are, you're, I mean, I don't know if you're having transformation, so to speak. The organization's called MIIT, correct? Is that the, uh, MITT is short for oh, Mastery in Transformational Training. Right. Not to be confused with the, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, I take it. Um, <laughs> right. Although probably deliberately named to create as much confusion as possible. You um, know, there but are it's, some it's, interesting similarities. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems like you were, uh, you know, you did allow yourself to be affected by the program. It does seem like, you know, you talk about leaving uh, the sessions with, with in, t in full tears and that you are. I mean, it did, it did seem like it had an emotional effect on you. It wasn't like you were just some uh, journalist, arms crossed, uh, you know, not, not, you kind of engrossed, you kind of went along for the ride, right? No, that's right. I mean, here's the deal um, Mastery and Transformational Training um, operates out of Culver City, and they conduct uh, what they refer to as a curriculum. There are three stages of the training, uh, and then there are courses and classes you can take after that. The first one is called the basic training. It lasts for five days. Uh, you go, when I went, it was held in a hotel ballroom uh, down near the airport, down near LAX. And so I arrived on my first evening. It would go approximately around sort of 7 p.m. until midnight or after midnight uh, for the first three days of the training. And you go in, uh, when I went, there were approximately 150 people with me. And you arrive wow. and you start doing a variety of sort of experiential exercises. Um, and that's what the article goes into is sort of, you know, some of the exercises. But really, sort of what was my thinking and what did I go through? And yet, a lot of them do result in, you know, I was weeping. I was interacting um, with my parents and shouting things at them. And granted, my parents weren't actually there, but 
by that point, I was sort of wiped out by the training. I really was able to imagine them in front of me. Um, and so, yeah, I went through the training, at least the first four days of it. And then when I came out of it and started doing some research into this group and where they came from, it turned out that MITT is based on a group called LifeSpring. Uh, LifeSpring, similar to the Landmark Forum, similar to EST. Uh, and if any of your listeners you know, are following uh, the show, The Americans, Est has become a big plot point you know, during a couple seasons of The Americans. But well, interestingly enough, my first my first guest was uh, actress named Erin Hayes, and her father was one of the original Est. Um, I guess I don't know if leaders or recruiters or what have you, but so she grew up in in like an Est household, and yeah, then sure. Est is what became Landmark, which. The people that have been listening to this podcast, I've had a few interactions with Landmark. A good friend of mine did it, and then I had a sales rep that took me to the the Tuesday night graduation ceremony, which is sort of their recruitment. Um, so when I read your article, I thought there was a lot of similarities between how Landmark is run and how this MITT is run. Yeah, and they have – you can go into Wikipedia and find the origin story. There are, um, there are connections there. But in any case, uh, LifeSpring, there was a big – article series done by the Washington Post, and I think 1987. Uh, the journalist was a guy named Mark Fisher. Uh, he attended one of the basic trainings for LifeSpring in Washington, D.C. At the time, LifeSpring was hugely popular. I mean, they ended up, I think, several hundred thousand people, they claimed, went through their trainings. Uh, the guy who started it became, you know, really rich because of it. Um, and Fisher, the Washington Post journalist, did this series about LifeSpring, because LifeSpring ultimately um, basically went out of business. Uh, there were about 35 lawsuits brought against it. I believe around six people died in the trainings. Um, and Which eventually, is crazy. right. Yeah, it's uh, horrible. And they, within the organization, according to Mark Fisher's reporting, had known that people were having adverse reactions to it. In any case, um, where this is all comes from in terms of MITT is there is a woman, the woman who runs MITT in Los Angeles, and it's only based in Los Angeles. Um, she was a real fan of LifeSpring. At the time, she had been running a beauty salon in Beverly Hills. And so she managed to license the trainings from LifeSpring after it had essentially gone out of business and restart it but under a new name called MITT, which basically since then, which is I think around 1997, you'd have to check the article be exact, but um, has been operating, you know, sort of quietly. They don't advertise and has basically been rebooting LifeSpring in Los Angeles. And when you, you interviewed her, this is the hairstylist turn uh, cult leader, we'll say, or maybe cult's a strong term, but she seemed a yeah, little, I mean, like, she wasn't still involved in it as much, right? So is she passed it to someone else at this point? I mean, let's be, I, I have to be really clear here. Like, you're not going to hear me say MITT and cult in the same sentence. Uh, because okay. I, I, I will refrain I then as well. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's your decision. Uh, but, you know, I, I actually brought that up with her because, so yes, um, her name is Margot Majdi. Um, I visited with her at her house um, a couple months after I had done my trainings to do an interview. And she was very welcoming, very open about MITT. Um, and we sat in her dining room and I brought up that question because, and the question meaning, how do you feel? I said to her, you know, in so many words, when people refer to MITT as a cult, because if you go on Yelp, you know, there's a ton of reviews about MITT on Yelp. And if you use the Yelp 
ranking system to look at the negative ones rather than, you know, whatever appears first. Within the negative comments, you'll see people referring to MITT as a cult. And so I asked her, how does it feel or what do you think about being referred to as a cult? And she just laughed. You know, she said, look, look around my room. Do you see anyone sitting at my feet? You know, do you see people worshiping me? Um, she brought up the fact, and I, I don't want to quote her, but it's in the story that, you know, things can seem culty anyway that aren't necessarily cult, uh, whether it's a religion, whether it's the ways that people conform to certain rules by society. So I think um, it, it's it's tricky. I, you know, for me, MITT is much more an organization that people just become very, very attached to. Um, the people that I interviewed, uh, and I interviewed quite a few people who had really positive experiences with MITT, um, had just a very strong sense of attachment. That's what I got the impression from them. Uh, at the same time, I also interviewed, you know, two people who had extraordinarily negative experiences with MITT. Right. Um, and it was pretty horrible. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, in your research, I'm sure you had to kind of come to it. What do you think is a, what do we, what's the line of demarcation between something that we might call a cult? Uh, like, I, have you seen the movie Wild Wild Country? Sure. I mean, that, I mean, I think we could call that a cult. I mean, is there is there a definition that you I mean, you guys at GQ or that you know that you guys will say? Obviously, you're apprehensive to say cult because I'm sure that could almost you know could almost be uh, could get you in legal trouble possibly. But like, I mean, I would say the Catholic Church is a cult, but maybe that makes me my definition of it a little bit. You know, if you have like for instance, if you look at the Catholic Church in Pits- in Pittsburgh, that's an organization that somehow managed to have 300 of its leaders <laughs> sexually abusing children. So why isn't that a cult? Or, you know, what is the line between a religion, a cult, and just maybe an organization? Do you have a thought of, a thoughts on that? Well, I think it's a really interesting conversation to have right now because there are certain things that are, let's say, in the news that can seem cult-like. You look at Nexium, you know, you look at the women that sort of um, venerated this guy at the center of it. Um, you look at a show like Wild Wild Country. And the popularity right. that that's had, you know, people discovering something that they, they're like, how could this go on? Uh, I think you can look at, when I think about the word cult, I think about devotion. I think about people um, looking at a person, looking at a system of beliefs or ideas, and just having this really intense attraction and response to it. Now, you could look at, for example, uh, you turn on C-SPAN and watch footage or CNN. Fox News and watch footage of a rally for the president, the way that people respond to him on stage, you know, is so emotional and so, uh, and I, you know, I, I want to say dramatic, but that almost makes it, uh, I don't want to make it sound silly because I think people's attachments to him, the people who are like pro-Trump fans is really like sincere and real. Uh, but so for me, yeah, cult can have a religious tone to it, but sometimes it can also just be about, you know, that sort of, I don't know, that depth of a, of a, of a feeling towards someone or some kind of like set of beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't help but to think about, because a lot of the tactics they use in this article, and I recommend everyone spend the weekend to read it because it's a long article. Um, I mean, it took me almost, you know, half hour to read, but I, I, it's a good sit down on a Sunday, read this article. Um, the title is My Life Cleanse, One Month Inside LA's Cult of Betterness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will say it was intended as a 3,000-word story, you know, because 
I did a lot of things for the story. You know, I spent an afternoon in Topanga Canyon in a plant communication workshop where I sat down in front of a bush and I was instructed on how to have a really deep, meaningful, silent communication with that bush. You know, I spent um, a long morning having a terrific brunch um, with a basically a UFO religion or a group that you know, believes that their former master, who passed away in the late 90s, was able to communicate with an intergalactic um, set of counselors who were going to be sort of sending messages and how to develop peace on Earth. Um, and they were the, like the nicest people that I've met in Hollywood. Uh, they have this sort of set of buildings that are just, you know, south of Hollywood Boulevard. Um, I went to a Gnostic ceremony in the Valley. Uh, I went out with a complexity coach who like, is a woman who takes clients on occasion hiking while working through sort of their therapy problems. Um, and, she's, and it's called a complexity coach? She's a complexity coach uh, up near – yeah, sort of northern Los Angeles. Uh, I went and met with the Oracle of Los Angeles. This was probably the best thing I did for the whole story. The Oracle of Los Angeles is a woman. She's a witch. Um, I went and spent the afternoon with her. We did all these spells around my head. She was able to penetrate my unconscious and tell me about a series of visions she had about me. Uh, and I'll tell you, like, I'm not, this is not a normal part of my life, let's say, spending, you know, mornings talking about UFOs and afternoons with witches. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I've seen therapists before. I've been in analysis and this was probably just as good, if not better than, you know, the therapist I used to have, you know, on, 59th Street in Manhattan. Well, there's that. I, I do think, you know, we're living in this era right now where it seems like everyone in America distrusts all institutions. And I wonder if to some extent, and I felt the same way. I've also gone to therapy as a child and then as an adult. And I felt that I actually found that like, what is, you know, it, yeah, it's a college degree you have, there's a master's degree, but is it you know, it, to me, like a good conversation with a friend can be just as effective, as often more effective than a therapist who's a bit financially incentivized for you to have a slow recovery, right? You know, yeah, that's you, right. It's it's sort of the original subscription model, and I've I've had friends who have been seeing the same therapist for fifteen, twenty years. So I, that it, it doesn't seem like that's being is necessarily effective, and I, you know, even in the small little sample I had of Landmark. And we can talk about some of the intimidation tactics these people use to kind of keep you in your seat. And and maybe that's what we do need in this world where we're all so distracted. Maybe you need, do need a little bit like, hey, sit down and shut up and, and pay attention and don't go to the bathroom every 10 minutes. Uh, I don't think it's all coming from a good place necessarily. But, um, you know, I wonder, you know, what, you know, what is the, what is, the, what does it mean to be psychologically accredited? I mean, is it that, <laughs> do, do those people really know what they're doing that much more than just what someone could make up on the fly? You know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, one thing I want to talk about, I mean, I don't know if you, I, I read your article and I, I couldn't, I kept making the comparisons because the way that they try to control, I, I, at least from my interpretation, reading your article, and I, this is my, at Landmark too, they had the same thing. There's a lot of like, don't go to the bathroom. And if you go to the bathroom, someone escorts you there. There's a lot of subtle pressure, uh, subtle intimidation. And the same kind of sales orientation that you mentioned, my friend uh, Ryland, who just did the Tony Robbins, Robbins workshop, and I don't think anyone is calling Tony Robbins' program a cult, but this constant drive to upgrade you to the $1,000 workshop and the $7,000 workshop and the 
you know, the one year program, if you know, you could sign up for three years for 40% off, but you have to do the next 10 minutes. And so, cause you got these people in a very vulnerable state, you know, they're having these breakthroughs and, and all of them do the same thing. They start at 10 in the morning, they end at midnight. So you're just exhausted. And then you're making these, these sales pitches that you can't get out of. A lot of them are non-refundable. Well, can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I would start with the point you made that people are really distrustful of institutions right now, right? And I think that's coming from the top of our politics to the nitty gritty of your everyday life. It's true. And I know I feel it sometimes too. And I reached out to that Washington Post reporter, the guy who did the series about Life Spring back in the late 80s. And I asked him, you know, what is it about MITT or Landmark or Est? Why are they appealing now? Why aren't these things just, you know, in the dustbin of history? And he was talking about how currently people's careers have a lot of dislocation, right? You know, families are more, you know, there's upset within the family because of political polarization, you know, or maybe it's that mom can't put down her smartphone, or it's that people are finding community on social media, but not in real life. I think what he was saying, and I agree with, is that people crave connection. People crave a sense of meaning. And that's something that a program like MITT, or presumably Landmark Forum or other groups, are suggesting that they're going to give you, that, that you're going to come into this room, you're going to spend these days with these people, you are going to be vulnerable, you're going to expose yourself, you're going to go through these exercises together that frankly can be really heart-wrenching. You know, you're going to weep in front of other people. In any case, when you're talking about like well, the tech- – It's reminiscent of Fight Club and the insight of that that book and, and then eventually movie, I would say the turn of the millennium was sort of this people desperate for connection, desperate for visceral experience. Right. And I think when I was talking to Fisher, he was telling me, he's like, look, you've got a group that says, what is going on in your life? You need to fix it and we can fix it for you. We can help you fix it with our, you know, quote unquote, patented system and everything's going to be all right and everything's going to be better. And yes, you do need to join, you know, stage two and then you need to level up to stage four and that's going to be, you know, X amount of money here and X amount of money there. But if this becomes the system that you now believe in, you know, I don't think it's the biggest leap for people to suddenly whip out the credit card again. So, you know, it's uh, from the outside looking in, you're like, wait a second, that seems really, really wrong because I can barely, you know, manage to uh, get an update from iTunes telling me that I have just resubscribed to an app for another year for $24.99. And I'm suddenly saying, wait a second, iTunes, don't take advantage of me. I'm not signing up for that again. You're crazy. You know, and yet when you're deep in the center of the maze, you know, you're going to keep going through the maze. Yeah, no, I, I felt it. I mean, I, my personal experience, I went to this uh, landmark graduation ceremony and the pressure is so intense. You know, I put a hundred dollar deposit down on a program and the, like on the drive home, I was like, what did I just do? There's no way I want to sit in a room with these people for four days. I felt, I felt like I felt a sense of, um, like a horror movie. You know, I was yeah. like, I, 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 and so I try to get the hundred dollars back. I never got it back and I just let it go and was like, well, whatever, you know, but, um, I, I couldn't believe how susceptible I felt like I, cause I, I am like the, 
I am a total, you know, I am not a group think person. I, I really am uncomfortable in groups. I don't like it. So I, I don't even like it when the, uh, the woman at the gap tries to help me pick a shirt out. You know, I'm just one of those people <laughs> that's highly independent. So the idea of being in a, you know, being told how to believe and how to think and, and, and it's, it's really this sort of subtle imita- uh, intimidation tactics. And you see it even in, in Tony Robbins. It's very much like, it's a very blunt style. It's, it's, there's a lot of insulting you. Right. Um, there's a lot of, uh, well, you're, you know, and I, and I've had, uh, other interactions with sort of guru types in Los Angeles. And I've noticed there's this tactic of sort of saying, well, you're obviously an idiot or you wouldn't be here. Right. And there's a, a and I, it's a subtle uh, destruction of your, you know, and maybe this is what is neat. I mean, obviously if you're going to this place, you're a little different because you're doing it for an assignment, but let's say you're someone that feels lost in life or feels like what you're doing isn't working. Well, you're really susceptible to be told you are worthless. You are an idiot. And if it was, it, I hear this kind of phraseology a lot. If what you're doing has been working for you, then why are you here? And so then you sort of become all your defenses go down. And then refusing to spend $2,000 on the next workshop is really about you not being open to this experience. And so it's a really, it's kind of a genius marketing tactic, but I think it's, to me, it's always like, why can't you just sell on attraction as opposed to high pressure sales? That's correct. Yeah. You know, one of the people I spoke to who had a really negative reaction, um, she, her sister had been, and this is all in the story, but her sister had been involved with MITT and was just telling her like, look, you've got to do this. Uh, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but she was just basically, she's really sort of encouraging her sister to do it. And her sister at the time was working as a photographer and was going to pay a consultant to help her expand her business. Uh, and it was about the same amount of money she would have paid to enroll in MITT. And thanks to her sister's, uh, let's say persuasion, she paid and did MITT instead, ended up having a horrible experience, uh, that ended ended up with her having a psychotic, uh, episode, uh, having to get hospitalized afterwards. She did not have a history, she says, of psychological issues. In any case, is this uh, through the five day program that you did the same thing? She did both the basic training, which is what I did. I did four days of the five days. And she also continued into the advanced training, uh, which she described to me as being a lot more intense. In any case, I asked her, you know, did she eventually, because this is, she did this all, I believe, in 2015. You'd have to double check the story. But I asked her, you know, because I interviewed her for the story, I said, well, did you ever hire that? Um, photography consultant and she sort of smiled at me she's like yeah and it was great you know really expanded my business um so i the irony (laughs) was a little bit intense um sorry i didn't i forgot your question no well i mean i i just um i guess for me i I, i'm wondering what's made america so susceptible or americans in general because there's this distrust of existing institutions and then we seem to be putting our trust in things that seem so much more obviously uh, sketchy. Whether you know, I mean, I don't. I try to avoid the politics, but I'm, I'm, I, you know, I think anyone who's not enamored with Donald Trump, it feels like a mouth agape on how anyone could see Donald Trump as the antidote to corruption and. It, and 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 a feeling of distrust in institutions. You think you know? To me, it's like you think Donald Trump is the guy you should trust, right? Um, and here with these like landmark and with MITT and 
it's uh I have a real high degree of skepticism and I, I think you know I have a friend that went through landmark and he's gonna I think he's coming on the podcast at some point to talk about it in depth um but he got a lot of good things out of it you know I mean his relationship uh with his wife uh, you know I think he they both said got better and they opened their communications up and um so there's obviously some good there. But it does seem like the, a common thread of these organizations is they, man, do they sure as hell extract a lot of money for that service? A lot, I mean, probably a lot more than a psychologist would. Maybe they'd argue on a per hour basis it's it's cheaper than psychology, and, and maybe that's right. I don't know, but um, yeah, I don't. I, it's a funny thing that's going on right now. Um, maybe it's technological change, uh, w- what have you. But um, y- you know, I mean, the the. The thought of uh, a cult, I mean, it feels like our country is – half of it is caught in a bit of a cult-like relationship with a man named Donald Trump. I mean, the, <laughs> the speed to which – you know, because there's one thing – you know, listen, like, I think like, you know, you can you can be cons- – you know, I, my dad was a conservative growing up. And so, you know, I could see like, you know, the val- validity of a conservative argument, the validity of a liberal argument. But what's happened here is it's a total cult personality and anything that Donald Trump says is good – is now the new stance of the Republican Party, and which is kind of shocking. It's it's and, and I'm sure, I'm sure conservatives could point to this happening on the liberal side of things, but I don't think it's totally analogous. It does feel a little asymmetrical? But right, ha- had had you had any thoughts about like what's going on or any insights like what's going on with our country and sure and you know from because it's the the sort of the the leader of the group of your five day workshop. It is the same kind of bully tactics and intimidation tactics and insulting, and it felt very reminiscent of the of the style of Donald Trump. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I mean, for me personally, the Republican Party has so completely lost any sense of trying to do good for this country and is only just about clinging to power. I mean, I have a really hard time having any kind of intellectual conversation with someone who tries to say that the Republican Party stands for anything anymore besides just this need to remain the head honchos. Uh, it's kind of disgusting, and I'd like to say that, but it's the trouble is disgusting doesn't get you very far, you know, as an adjective. It's an emotional word. It's a way to shut down thinking or responding or feeling about something. So as much as I'd like to call the GOP disgusting, I really strive not to because that just allows me to put them in a box and close the box and put the box in the top shelf of my closet. Uh, but then again, it's hard to, you know, rationally argue otherwise. Um, in terms of... Well, it's... it's. Uh, I think it, what it is is that the Republicans saw an opportunity to speak to the heartland culture, uh, which they have a connection. I mean, the Republican Party somewhere in the 80s decided we need to tap into the evangelical movement and, you know, as, as sort of a way to, you know, they start picking these, these wedge issues like abortion and gun rights and, you know, things that if you live in the country or, you know, if you live in a, on a farm, having a gun is more a part of your heritage. It's part of your culture. And so it feels like even though the Republican party, I still think stands for the economic interests of the top 1%. I mean, it's the most laughable thing about the Republican party is that it's the party out to help, the middle class. I mean, that's just. I mean, and and, and even I think the voters kind of know it because the tax bill was so overtly. <laughs> I don't want to make this all about politics, but <laughs> it does seem to be a cult-like relationship. And I think one thing that's interesting is that I think that I think it would not be. You know, you're a journalist. I would say if you polled the majority of journalists working across 
you know, all print and television media, it would probably be something like 85% vote Democrat. So they're not wrong when they say that there's a bit of a liberal bias. And then because there's only one Fox News for as the as the you know the the alternative, I feel like maybe they feel justified in manipulating facts and, and distorting truth because they feel like, well, we're so outmanned that we're justified in a sort of almost propagandist role. I mean, I don't know. Have you given any thought to that? I mean, I I wouldn't I couldn't tell you how many journalists you know vote one way or another. Uh, I always, when thinking about Fox, I like to distinguish between. Fox News and Fox Opinion, because the actual Fox News anchors, uh, you know, do quality journalism. It's just that the rest of and almost all of Fox's broadcast is entertainment. You know, it's just uh, Sean Hannity is not a journalist. That's just, you know, a guy screaming at the television. But it is it's meant to be entertainment. They've talked about this before. It's an extremely well-selling product. You know, it's just that they happen to cloak it under the banner of Fox News. So let's call it, you know, news rather than saying, hey, folks, this is actually a clown show. Uh, Hey, I mean, I don't have a problem with clowns, you know, clowns are entertaining. So I get the (laughs) appeal. You know, I think in terms of the people that I talked to for this story, and this is over the course of several months of reporting, what I found to be common among people, and this is again, all in Los Angeles, for the most part, is that people are searching People are lonely. Los Angeles can be a lonely town, right? There's no safety net. Uh, it is not no, so much a town as a county. It's not so much a county as a region. It's I yeah. you know, have this opinion that it's a little bit more like a city-state than an actual another American city, that sometimes you can find more things in common between Los Angeles County with Singapore or Dubai than you can with Miami or Houston. Uh, in any case, it does feel like it's a it's sort of an international city and akin to like a Berlin or maybe even like London, where it's almost a, an amalgamation of people from all over the globe. Well, I mean, it definitely is that. That's for sure. I mean, currently in the United States, it's not the most diverse city in the United States. That's Houston. But Los Angeles, you know, typically has more people of other nationalities here than any other place than those nations themselves, you know. Uh, and Los Angeles County itself has 88 cities. You know, we are sitting on this massive landmass and people are floating around in their cars. And I think people that I spoke to, you know, they're looking for purpose in their lives. They're looking for meaning. They're looking to come home in their apartment at the end of the day and have somebody else hang out there rather than it being a dog, you know? And so I think when these groups, um, they don't, I don't think MITT has a hard time pulling people in. And like I said, the majority of people I spoke to who went through it have had really positive experiences. Now, the people I spoke to have done it recently. Will they still be in that afterglow three years from now? I can't tell you. But you know, when you're sort of in the grip of a uh, program, let's say, and I by grip, I just mean like that emotional connection is like so intense. Um, I, I, kind of wonder if the glow of their response is more to do with how close they are to it than, you know, if we talked 18 months from now. Um, is there a percentage of people? I mean, obviously, L.A. is known as the city of of the of the film industry. But I mean, did it feel like people beyond just actors? You know, I mean, there's a cliche that, well, yeah, failed writers, actors, directors, what have you are all, you know, you're pursuing a job that's more probably more unlikely than being an NBA <laughs> player, right? You right. know, 
uh, so disappointment's bound to occur. Uh, but it, was it people from all different uh, industries oh, yeah. as well? It was. It was very few people from Hollywood. Um, and it's similar to you know, it's it's nice. A nice part about living in LA. Um, and so, for example, my wife and I work as a screenwriting team in addition to sort of other stuff that we do. So we have lots of friends who are writers, directors, producers in Hollywood. But thankfully, we have a lot of friends, the majority of our friends, who are not. And you, it'd be easy within the Hollywood bubble to think everyone here works in the industry. If you're a writer, it means you're a TV writer. If you, you know, work in production, well, that means that you're working on set or you whatever. The point is, this group of people was far more representative of, you know, greater Los Angeles. That you had scientists, you had. Um, models. You had people that just worked a regular corporate job doing marketing, or they were managing a small family business. You had people that were without jobs. You had people that were students. I mean, it was all walks of life. Um, I would say there were probably only, you know, your average, you know, three or four aspiring models slash actors slash musician types. But generally, it was a pretty broad swath of people. It was all colors. There were people, I would guess, that were in their late teens, early 20s, there were people I would guess were in their, you know, 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. It was really from all walks of life. And they weren't just coming from Los Angeles. These were people that were traveling from out of state also. Uh, so it was a big, wide variety of people. And yet, like I said, that common something that seemed to be that they were just on the search, you know, they were searching and maybe they went from one group to another. There's plenty of groups out there that can try to sell them something. And they just happened to be in MITT that day. I don't know. Well, I wonder, there's so many factors that make LA unique. And I think LA, I've said this before in some other podcasts, but I feel like the LA is having its moment as I think the most popular in the United States, city in the United States right now. I think whatever, that, you know, that kind of the moment that New York had in the late 90s, early 2000s is what LA is having now. It seems to be the the destination du jour for, you know, recent college graduates. And, um, and the the entire nation of France. Like I was just reading about how Bon Marche, the big, I think, I think it's Bon Marche, the big high-end department store in Paris, is for the holidays doing a full LA theme. So it's LA themed everything. You know, you've got tacos, you've got um, Beach Boy uh, sort of serve longboards, you know, set up. Like I, I agree with you that LA is very sort of hot right now. You know, the uh, the New York Times just assigned its first uh, West Coast food critic, who's based here. Uh, it's wow. it's a lifestyle <laughs> that we all live. And you've lived here for four years, you said about uh, about more like yeah, three and a half, yeah. And you're 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 someone that because like, I I thought at the beginning of the article you were you seemed pretty critical of, of L.A. but I think you were speaking maybe more from the perspective of the average kind of uh, self improvement seeker or or do you find it to be for yourself sort of a lonelier city than maybe uh, were you in New York before this? Oh no, I mean to be super clear about this, I love Los Angeles. I actually love Los Angeles unlike any other place I've lived. So I have. Previous to this, my wife and I were living in rural North Carolina. Previous to that, we were living in Paris, France. Previous to that, we were living in New York City. I've also lived uh, in rural Maine. I lived for a while in South Africa. Um, I grew up mostly in suburban Connecticut. So I've lived in a couple places. And for whatever reason, landing in Los Angeles about three and a half years ago, it honestly felt like home in a way that no other place had before. Um, and so I've just been ever since just reading everything I can about Los Angeles because I am so enamored of it. You know, I will take Burbank over Brooklyn any day, you know, and I like all of it. I like San Pedro. That's a bold statement, my friend. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and you know, I just find that there's so many interesting people out there. Um, I like Lakewood. No, I, I'm with you 100%. I mean, I've been here for 12 plus years now, and I lived in Chicago before that. I grew up outside of New York City, and I, I, for me, it was an immediate felt like home. I don't know if it was like New York City without, but with like you know a little bit more space and you could afford a place that felt a little bit more like a home and not this little, you know, 600 square foot apartment. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm, I'm in totally enamored with LA and I love all the little neighborhoods, but, um, but I don't, I think you're right that for a lot of people, it can be very, a very challenging city to make friends. There's a lot of people that are freelance. So that means there's no, there's not like an office you go to where you hang out every day and, you know, right. Well, there's also, I mean, there's so much about LA that's horrible. You know, like I said, I don't think there's a safety net. You know, we've got, what, 56,000 people who are homeless in the county. You know, I was just down on Skid Row a couple times last week. You know, there's a guy walking towards me who had no toes on his feet, and his junk is hanging out the front of his pants. Um, I, you know, you read about Los Angeles generally being a place that, you know, could erupt at any second. Uh, We have more people in prison and jail than any other place in the United States. Like we literally cage more people than anybody else in the United States. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that are horrible. I heard that statistic in your – but is that on a per capita basis, like per 100,000 or is that just just because of sheer volume? It's a per capita basis, I believe. I was actually just reading a book about sort of the messed up prison system in Los Angeles. That's something I can't get into off the top of my head and be super accurate about. But the statistics are just terrifying. Um, yeah, that was, a uh, I, that was news to me. And I, it's funny. I mean, LA, uh, you know, and I, as, as someone that I think is left to center myself, I do look at Los Angeles and California in general, th- you know, you go, how is it we have such a high tax rate yet? We don't seem to have a great infrastructure. We don't seem to have great, great public schools anymore. And, you know, it, there is a question, big question mark of like, and we have Silicon Valley here. <laughs> so how is it we don't have enough money to pay for everything? And, you know, and I, I, a lot of people's answer to that is the, uh, the initiatives that people can vote on that are sort of these unfunded mandates. But uh, yeah, it's a, I know you're writing a book about Los Angeles, which is, it sounds like a really interesting project. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to obsess all about Los Angeles because I think this cult, you know, this uh, not cult, sorry, but the uh, this self-improvement movement is not just LA based. I think it's the incubator. Um, but, you know, when I lived in Chicago, that was where I had my first taste of Landmark. And I know I have friends in Boston that I've had interactions with some of these organizations. So I think it's, I think LA is more susceptible to it. Sure. I think it's, I think it's maybe a big part of it too, is that we're such a secular culture here. I think religion is probably not as much of a priority for people that live in Los Angeles. And that if you have religion, you probably don't need a a self-improvement organization because maybe you're getting a lot of that community and in meaning from that. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think no it depends. I'm no defender of religion, but... Right. You know, I think there certainly is a secular community in Los Angeles, but, you know, there's also large, large uh, religious groups in Los Angeles. You know, you look at sort of the Korean-American Christian population, you look at different Muslim populations around Los Angeles, you look at, you know, I think we are the second largest Jewish community in the United States, uh, you know, and this is a town that was sort of built on, you know, good Christian white people retiring from Iowa so they could put their feet up and enjoy the benefits of the sun. You know, so it's like there's all these odd religious layers to Los Angeles history. And I, being a secular person, you know, as you peel back the layers, you're just like, holy cow, this is among the most religious places I've ever been. But then again, I'm like you, and what you're saying is totally true. Like that feeling that sense of secularity, um, 
can sort of lead you to looking for other things. And maybe you want to, you know, maybe it's an ayahuasca ceremony. Maybe it's you've gotten really into weed lately. <laughs> maybe it's just, you know, you're finding community by streaming everything you can at night and burning your eyeballs out. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you're a Sam Harris fan at all, but um, he sort of awakened me to sort of a, you know, I've never been religious, but now I've become actually like a little bit, you know, uh, <laughs> more devoutly atheist. And, uh, but there is a big debate that he, he has with his guests about in the absence of religion, well, what is it we are, you know, it's like, it's easy to say, well, we shouldn't trust these, these documents that we claim are written by God because there's a lot of evidence that that's not the case. And also, uh, there's a lot of bad information in there that we choose not to, you know, it's, it's, there's sort of highly imperfect doctrines, right? But then in the absence of religion, what is it we're supposed to do? Or, or, you know, it's easy to say that we should abandon religion. Uh, but in favor of what? And, and do we know what that looks like if we are, if there's no doctrine or there's no shared value structure? You know, is it totally obvious that humans just gravitate towards, <laughs> you know, some sort of moral, uh, structure that will work for everybody? I don't know. Sure. I don't know. I do know that I've got a witch in mid city that I think is great. So, you know, if any of your <laughs> listeners are looking for professional witches, you can Google the Oracle of Los Angeles. She's terrific. You're a brave man. I, I, I uh, for me, this article was my greatest nightmare was to be in this because I, I, you know, the landmark thing, I was so close to being like, screw it. What am I afraid of? But then you do realize that we're a lot more vulnerable. I mean, look at half the country was vulnerable to one man taking over an entire party, right? Sure. There are things that no one had a favorable opinion of, 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 uh, of Putin until Donald Trump said that's what, he has a favorable opinion. You know, so we are, as a culture, as a society, and I'm not just saying conservatives, I think all of us, we're a lot more susceptible to being uh, manipulated than we could would ever acknowledge. And so that is why I have a fear of walking into one of these places. Because you go, God, do I come out the other end uh, a bit indoctrinated? And then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, <laughs> people are going, oh, Jeff's coming over. I hope he doesn't talk about his cult anymore tonight. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I was talking to that Washington Post reporter and I was asking him because he did the live stream training back in you know the late 80s, so 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, what are, what are the impressions you have? Like, what has stuck with you after you did it? And he said what was so almost mesmerizing, if it weren't for being so frightening, was how easily the leader of the training was able to have a sway over people, was able to sort of step in and almost assume control or seem to assume control. And that people not only yielded to that, but seemed to want it, that seemed to welcome it, seemed to be excited to have someone stepping up to them and sort of saying, this is how it's going to be. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. And if you follow my rules, and if you follow what I say, this is the result. You know, It's almost like an investment, your portfolio manager calls you up. It's not even yours. Let's say it's from some random bank and you've got, you know, $5,000 worth of stock in your 401k and some random guy calls you up and says, look, give me that $5,000 and I will tell you in 25 years, you're going to have $400,000. And he shows you a nice graph and it's one line that goes all the way up, right? And you're like, well, that does sound pretty great. I don't know. That impulse to sort of just be swayed for a moment can be so strong within the promise of what you're going to get just a, a little bit down the road, I think it can really, you know, lead people. And I'm not saying that I'm not, a, that I'm immune to this in some interesting, if not weird directions. 
So I was just interested, though. I mean, did you find – because you even talked about how you – like when you basically bailed on the last day of your program, you felt this sense of um, – Oh, maybe I didn't. Maybe maybe I'm. Maybe I didn't give it my all. Or, or did, did that linger with you for a while? Or after a while, you're like, oh my god, thank God I got out of that thing. Uh, yeah, on the last day of my training, I just decided I wasn't going to go. That I couldn't do it anymore. That I was uh, just. Let's just say I just couldn't take it anymore. And so I decided I'm not going to go. I went out and ran some errands. I went to the grocery store. But at the same time, because I had been doing it so intensely for several days in a row, you know, and it is an extraordinarily intense atmosphere that you're involved in, um, I suddenly started to feel pretty weird about it. I suddenly started to feel like I had let them down. You know, you are within the MITT training that I did. Um, I was, you know, set up in a small group of people. So not only in the 150 people, I also had this small group of, let's say, half a dozen, 10 people, something like that. And we had become friends, you know, we had shared extraordinarily um, intimate things about our lives with each other, the kind of stuff you would never tell a stranger, let alone tell your sister, brother, best friend, mother, wife, father, whatever. And I started to feel like, oh, shit, you know, what have I done? Because there's this message that comes through in the training that if you don't participate as fully as possible, you're letting other people down and inhibiting their training too. So here I was quitting on the last day, you know, and I was like, wait a second, shit, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should go back. And in fact, I actually started to have this a little bit of a delusion that my small group leader, who was sort of on staff with MITT, he was a volunteer, that he was going to come and find me, you know, that he was going to hop in his car (laughs) and drive across town, you know, and I live sort of up uh, above Hollywood and these trains were taking place down near the airport. And I just had this vision that he was going to hop in like a Honda Civic and come racing to get me. And I couldn't be at home. Like I didn't want to be there in case he could come find me. And so I ended up texting him being like, you know, I just had to let him know that I wasn't going to make it. I didn't want him to worry about me. The point is, even me, I went there and I'm, a, you know, I'm your typical You couldn't have gone in with person. more eyes wide open. Correct. Yeah. And I also, in, in the back of my head, obviously, I always knew that I would probably end up writing about this. So I did have a degree. Not only did I have a different purpose for being there, but I had a, in the end, an, an inescapable amount of uh, a partition between me and the experience. You know, I, I threw myself into it. I wanted to be, do every exercise they gave us as fully as possible to have as similar an experience to everyone else around me and also not inhibit their experiences. At the same time, you know, I was there for a different purpose. And even still, on the last day, I was like, okay, shit, I should go back. Okay, shit, maybe I didn't give it everything. So, yeah, I would say I was messed up about it. I say this in the article. I was messed up about it for about a week. Um, really just wow. sort of confused. And did you did, – did anything from this training stick with you or did you have any insights or breakthroughs that you've carried forward? No. No, I mean, I, like, I think the, in, the the insights came were similar to what Mark Fisher, that journalist, was telling me about. Just, I was, let's just say, I was surprised by people's response to it. I was surprised by the way that people um, sort of gave into it so easily, so readily, so quickly, so eagerly. You know, they, that the way people saw it didn't see, didn't see what I saw. That's what I was almost shocked by, um, or most. That's what I took away from it. And and that's sort of the phenomenon, you know, I have friends that are Trump supporters on Facebook and our conversations are just like, we're, wow, we are just living different lives. I mean, we are seeing different information. There's no shared, there's no shared 
it's like it you know it really is like two different you know at a, there was a fork on the road at some point and they're seeing one version of the world and we're seeing another and and I, I feel that way when I've gone to landmark and things like that and um you know and they're listen they're, I, I'm sure they're not wrong when they say that for a certain group of people this is maybe like if it wasn't for this their lives would be a lot worse off um but for me I don't know maybe and maybe we're the wrong kind of candidates for this thing. People did tell me that, you know, people who had gone through the trainings had, I heard that kind of reaction to it. And my, if I have a problem here, it's not at all with their experiences. It's that it's with the experience of the people who had terrible experiences. It's with the people who had right. experiences that uh, were extraordinarily negative. And I would ask the question, did the organization do everything they could to you know prevent that from happening um and are the safeguards in place um why in a city of self i mean los angeles is the city of self-promotion right it's in the united states if anyone yep. anywhere is going to be talking about themselves it's happening here and yet this organization <laughs> keeps uh it's sort of it, it won't tell you what comes next it keeps its methodology you know under wraps uh, it's, I, I like the phrase that sunshine is the best disinfectant. You know, I like things that are transparent. I like things that are open. I like to hear people cite research. I like science. Uh, when someone tells me, I can't tell you what happens in these things, but you got to go experience it for yourself. Uh, I am in, immediately going to say, what are you talking about? Because nothing can't, shouldn't be discussed out in the open, right? Um, so well, it's the same. It's it's the foundations of all religions, right? It's it, uh, the key key principle here is you have to have faith. Don't question any of it, right? Uh, and that that's sort of what they're saying. I mean, and maybe they're not saying don't question any of it, but they're basically because um, I think if you knew what you're going to be, if you knew what you had to do, then you probably wouldn't do it, right? I mean, the nice thing about you know religions. Not only have even the ones that are relatively new, you know, whether it's the Church of Mormon or the Church of Scientology, they're actually some of them are like really upfront about what they believe in. And it's kind of like, can you get down with this story? Because we've got a guy who died, went to heaven, came back. You know, he's I'm not I'm literally not making fun of any of your Christians listeners or anyone who believes in any other story that comes from a certain part of religion. But they're clear about it. You know, like the books have been published. Dig into it. If you like it, if you respond right. to it, You can great. step into a Catholic church without having to sign up for a year subscription first. <laughs> and any priest inside, you know, any uh, official of the Catholic church can tell you exactly what they believe, why they believe it, and where it comes from, you know? I just sometimes wish that groups like MITT or similar groups would be as transparent or upfront with what they're all about. Well, I think that, you know, I have a prediction that I think someone's going to take a uh, the technology, I, I'm using their term, not my term. I think it's a little bit absurd to call it technology, but I think someone's going to take one of these programs and actually make it more open. And I'm actually a little terrified because I think if you took, if you made a more open version of this and a more like, come if you want, leave if you want to, I think for people like me, it might be a lot more attractive because, you know, like I said, I'm the guy that wants to pick out his own shirt in the store, right? So if you <laughs> didn't, if you didn't tell me I can't go to the bathroom, you probably wouldn't, you probably would, maybe you'd get me to actually sign up for the four day program. But when you tell me that I can't go to the bathroom because doors slamming is too distracting, I was like, well, that's not, <laughs> you know, I went to college. My professor didn't say that no one was allowed to go to the bathroom because it would interrupt our learning. You know, it's, it's, it's an absurd premise, but it's about exerting control over you. It's about saying, we're going to, we're going to sort of shame you for doing anything independent. 
Right. Um, and, and, those and tactics... to be clear, like in MIT, they're not, they don't pre- prevent you from going to the bathroom. It's more, it's almost more subtle than that. And so I'm only just explaining it just so you have it. Cause I think you read the story, but for someone who hasn't read the story at one point during the training, yeah, we'd been sitting there for two hours listening to things about what the training was about. And I just had to take a piss, you know? And so I, I'm in like one of the last rows and I sort of start to get up and I'm very subtly trying to reach the doors. And then the trainer calls me out, you know, and be basically being saying, and I, you know, you can read the article, but saying like you right now, what you're doing is you're giving up on this training. And so I went to leave and they're very clear, like, yeah, if you need to go take, you know, a dump, you can go do that. But they are going to discourage you from doing things that essentially take away from you participating in their training. So the doors aren't locked. But, you know, as I was walking to the doors, two of the staff members sort of came towards me as if to sort of suggest like, hey, this is not cool. And I'm thinking, I need to go to the bathroom. I'm a human. I'm going to go do what I want. Uh, so yeah, there are, there are these sort of methods that they use to sort of keep you in your seat. Um, because, well, I can also say for my, for my landmark experience, if there wasn't someone walking me to the bathroom, I probably would have walked out of the building. I mean, I, I, to be honest, and I think that's maybe part of it too. Um, you know, cause like someone will, I don't know if this is how, but for me, they like said, we'll escort you to the bathroom. Someone stood outside the bathroom door while I went to the restroom and then <laughs> was there to escort me back into the room. That is so creepy. Um, it's so creepy, but it's funny that these two organizations have almost identical policies about <laughs> apparently how often you pee is really important to how you control one's mind. Um, <laughs> and, and I just don't, it just, it all seems very, uh, it's there to create an air of power over you or, um, yeah, I, I just don't, it did not gel with me at all. And, uh, you know. I'm willing, unlike you, I don't know if I'd be willing to do a four day landmark or a four day, five day MITT because I just, I, I it, scare, it, it scares me a little bit because I think you realize that these things work and you are, you are susceptible to be kind of converted. Maybe sure. I'm, maybe I'm too weak minded. Uh, no, I doubt that. I don't think that's the issue. <laughs> well, we got about a couple of minutes left here. I, I wanted to kind of just talk a little bit about some of your, your writing. I mean, you're, uh, for those of you that don't know your work beyond this uh, this article, again, my life cleanse. If you search it on it's GQ article, um, but you also you've been a, you're a really established writer. I mean, you you know, uh, I I'm a film director in Hollywood. I think like for me, I'm just really curious. Like, uh, you know, only have a couple minutes here, but uh, would you talk a little bit about how you became a writer? And 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 uh, I, you know, we have a lot of people on the show that are always curious about people's regiments. Do you have a do you use any uh, for lack of a better term productivity kind of insights or self-help stuff that's helped you maintain that writing discipline? Or have you always been really just kind of self-motivated and organized? You know, it goes back to a professor I had in college um, who said, look, writing is about getting up or not necessarily getting up, doing it every day. Writing is about finding time, whether it's 15 minutes, whether it's an hour, whether it's four hours, but you need to do it every day. Um, By doing it every day, the virtue is Four out of seven days, maybe five out of seven days are crap, right? You're, what you've written, you just put it aside at the end of the day and you go back and you look at it and you're like, oh my God, what was it? But the nice thing about having that set schedule of knowing that you're going to do seven days, knowing that you're going to do six days, is it allows you to have a couple of days that are actually pretty good. And if you have those couple of days that are pretty good, those couple of days start to add up. So maybe that adds up in a way that, you know, after four weeks of a couple of you know, good days each week, you've got a short story finished. You've got a script, you know, start outlined. Maybe after six months, you've got 
half a dozen short stories, which is starting to look like a collection. You know, maybe after three months, you've got that script. Maybe you've got it not only blocked out, but you've written the first half of it. Maybe you've written the whole thing. The point is, you can't control your talent. You can't control luck, but you can control persistence, right? So, yeah, I would say, basically, I figured out I'm a morning person. Uh, I do really well early in the morning. So, I get up at 5.04 on the dot. Um probably pretty much every day. And I write seven days a week. Uh, but I'm, I mean, I'm a super nerd about it. I have my day blocked out usually by half hour increments. Uh, it just helps me sort of stay on top of things. I have a piece of software that I use that just sort of, I note down like how the day is going to go. Uh, and I've been doing that for, yeah, I would say probably. Can I ask I'm, what software you use for that? Sure. It's an app called Things. I've been using it for probably about 10 years. Uh, and just you know Things well. Things is great. So yeah, I've been um, I've been uh, writing for probably that and that kind of system for about twenty years. Uh, my most recent novel was published um, last summer. It was called The Last Kid Left. Uh, it is a sort of murder mystery coming of age story based on a true crime that I discovered uh, in New Hampshire in the nineteen thirties. Uh, and then I've also got a two books. Uh, my first novel was called You Lost Me There. Uh, and I have a travel memoir or a creative nonfiction book called Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down, which is the story of me, true story of me getting a job in a French ad agency, despite not really being able to speak French, and what it's like to live and work in the Paris of today as compared to sort of the image that we all have of how life should be in Paris, France. I uh, love the title. I'm an LCD sound system fan. The title <laughs> yeah. seems to be uh, inspired by yeah, the, I was, the song I did, New York, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. I, it was, uh, and I did a reading one time in New York, and good size reading. Woman comes up to me afterwards, friend of a fr she sort of knew a friend of mine. He introduced her. I'd never met her before, and she was the keyboardist from LCD Sound System. And she's like, "Hey, just want to let you know, you know, we've all heard about the book. I just finished it recently. Really enjoyed it." And I was like, "Oh my god, that's, thanks so much! It's amazing. You're the keyboardist for LCD Sound System." And she's like, "Yeah, you know, <laughs> one thing amazing. I would point out is that um, our record label actually is." Um, going to be suing your publisher about copyright infringement and there was like a long pause and she's like i'm just kidding but the pause between oh. <laughs> when she said that and when she said i'm just kidding was enough for my heart to be like eh. oh my god uh, but i that was totally not true then no no not true <laughs> the record all. label but, never sued you thankfully you cannot you know copyrights do not apply to titles um so luckily no lawsuits there but yeah and so I know um, that from my my film uh, my fil as a director I've I've learned that you know you can you can call a movie Star Wars as long as you don't you know have so, so, yeah, titles are wide open I guess that's right um, well that's great I, I'm looking forward to reading some of your books uh, for those of you who are at home and you want something really fun to read uh, this weekend or you could you could read it at night too uh, my life cleanse one month inside LA's cult of betterness uh, and that's in GQ it's also available online. And, um, yeah, I know you have to go here, um, but this has been great. I really appreciate you, uh, doing this on such short notice. And, um, if you, uh, if you dabble in the self improvement space again, uh, please, uh, reach out. I'd love to talk to you more about it. This yeah. My really pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. And I will, I will say the article was originally intended to be in the print magazine. And that was when it was just like, Hey, Rosecrans is going to spend four weeks sampling woo woo around Los Angeles. Unfortunately, uh, due to my experiences, it suddenly went from a 3,000-word sort of fun piece to a 9,000-word or 10,000-word investigation. So it actually is only running online because it ended up being too long to go in the magazine. Oh, gotcha. Okay. The uh, it, I don't know if you knew this, but you were the number one story on Dig yesterday. Oh, great. So, uh, 
Glad kudos. To hear it. Okay, cool. Well, digs my digs my aggregator of choice. Uh, nice. <laughs> well, glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk again, hopefully down the road. Sounds good. Thanks. You too. Thanks, man. Hey guys, if you're liking the podcast and want to help us out, just a quick reminder to go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave a comment, suggest some new people we should have on the show, topics you want us to discuss, and you can also do the same on Twitter. You can hit me up at at Jeff Grace, and otherwise, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.